very excited about our topic today. We're going to clarify more deeply what is justification and adoption. So we're going to cover two different theological points today. And I was rereading it yesterday, what I had written, and I just thought, this is important, what we're going to learn today. And it's, again, a time I want to encourage you. This is a great time to choose to read the book of Romans because you, Romans is saturated with these theologies we're going to be talking about, specifically justification, sanctification, and glorification, which is what we'll be getting into in the next few weeks. And if you open up your book to Romans, I would say get a, get a color pen or pencil and mark where you see the word justification, mark where you see sanctification. So it'll pop up at you. So you have your own ownership of understanding what the Bible says on this topic, because it's deep with theology. So what we're going to be focusing on today is we're going to learn what is justification, but also how does Protestants and Catholics view justification differently? They use the same word, but mean something completely different. We're also going to talk about something that's relatively new. N.T. Wright created it. He's a theologian called the New Perspective on Paul. You may or may not have heard that term, but that theology of this new perspective of Paul is getting into churches, especially more liberal churches. So I want you to understand what this new theology that has popped up on justification by N.T. Wright and why that is not biblical. And then we are going to conclude with talking about how we are adopted in God's family and the privileges that come with adoption. So that's what we will cover today. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for your word, that we can study it, and that it won't just renew our mind, but it will bless our hearts. It will give us all of you so we would worship you with all of our heart, soul, and minds and that it would continue to transform our life, that today it's going to give us an assurance of our salvation. It's going to give us a way to have a clear dialogue with Catholics to see if they are followers of Jesus and understand the gospel. And today we're going to leave knowing we understand that we are justified. So thank you, Lord, for this time that we can grow in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So Romans 8 verse 30, says, those whom God called, he also justified. And this word is in past tense, not he will justify, but he has justified. It is completed. So we are talking about something that is complete because of Christ. So here is the definition of what justification is. Justification is an instantaneous legal act. It is a legal act of God. And two things happen in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Therefore, he declares us to be just or morally righteous. So he's thinking of us as forgiven and he's thinking of Christ's righteousness as belong to us. And because of that, he is declaring we are just and we are morally righteous in his sight. This is why often you will hear pastors say, justification means just as if I've never sinned, but we have sinned, right? So it is a position, it is a legal position. It's just as if I haven't sinned, even though I have sinned. 
The verb justify in the New Testament Greek has a range of meanings, okay? But a very common meaning of the word justify is to declare righteous. That is what the Greek word means, to declare righteous. Romans 4, 5 says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you see the term justify and you see the word righteousness in this passage. God declares the ungodly righteous in his sight, not on the basis of their good works, but in response to their faith. Romans 8.34 says, It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. So to condemn someone is to declare them guilty, right? To condemn someone is to declare them guilty. The opposite of condemnation is justification, which in this context means to declare someone not guilty. You are declared not guilty. It's important to emphasize that this legal definition in itself does not change our internal nature or character at all. So justification does not internally change us. We have talked in previous weeks about regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit enabling us to have faith and that we become a new creation or we are born again. That's what regeneration means, right? And in the future, we're going to talk about sanctification, which is us continually purging sin out of our life and becoming more like Jesus. But justification itself is just a legal definition and does not change our nature or character at all. It changes our position to God. That is the difference. John Murray makes this distinction between regeneration and justification. I'm going to quote him here. He says this, regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. But that is not what a judge does. A judge gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel. So you need to set justification as a separate thing from regeneration, which we studied, and then sanctification, which we will study in the future. So this is a legal action with God as the judge, declaring a person is righteous in his sight. This means there's no penalty for our sins in the past or the present or the future. They were all put on Christ. And where were they paid for? At the cross. And so our sins, all of them are forgiven. He also considers Christ's righteousness as being put onto us permanently. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when a person responds to God's call, 
through repentance and faith. That's what we studied last week, right? We need to repent and have faith. Then God responds to that faith by thinking of that person's sins as forgiven and by thinking of Christ's righteousness as belonging to that person. So God declares in an instant that that person is righteous in his sight. Nothing you need to do makes you righteous. You are instantly righteous in his sight. And we are no longer liable to punishment. Romans 3.26 says that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have right standing. We don't have to be afraid of his wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a right standing before God. You see, I have already listed probably seven or eight Romans passages to you on justification. Now, Galatians 2.16 also says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, this is a very clear verse. Justification is not by our works. We need to say that as we go into studying how Catholics view this in a few moments. So here's a question people might ask, though. They're, they say, well, what about James? Because James says in chapter 2, 21, as well as verse 24 and 25, that a person is justified by works. So he's using the same word justified, but he's not saying faith. He's saying works. And so it can seem confusing. So in context, what James is talking about is us being righteous or being seen as right to other people not how we are declared righteous by God. So we are justified by our works by a person where when Marilyn or when Patty see my life, they're like, Holly is living out good works. She must be justified, not because of her good works, but it's an evidence that God has justified my life, that, that God is in my life. You see this more clearly if you study James 2, 18 through 26. His focus is on the outward evidence of a person's faith, okay? So there's other verses that say, by their fruits, you will know them, yeah. right? We can't judge if a person's a Christian or not, but there's evidence of fruit because there's some works happening there, not to make them saved, but to be evident that God is working in their life, okay? That's how you make sure that these other justification verses don't contradict to James. So what is true of those who have been justified by faith? Well, let's go back. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you're justified, there's no condemnation. Romans 4, 6 through 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So our sins will not be counted. We are fully forgiven. And then David said in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So our sin is not seen at all by God, even though we still wrestle with sin on earth. But here's something I want you to think about. It's a little tricky, but try to listen to what I'm saying here. If God merely declared us to be forgiven of our sins, that would not solve our problem entirely. 
It's not just that we needed to be forgiven. It would only make us morally neutral before God, like at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. They were morally neutral and they had to choose to be righteous by continuing to obey God, okay? And they failed in that, right? And so we would be in the same state as Adam before he did anything right or wrong. He was not guilty before God, but Adam had not earned or proven a record of righteousness before God. And we had talked about how part of the reason Jesus couldn't die as a child, he had to wait till he was a fully a man, was he had to prove he lived a righteous life too. Not just died perfect, but lived a righteous life so that we could receive his righteousness. And so that is what this is talking about here. We must move from a point of moral neutrality to a point of having the righteousness of a life of perfect obedience to him. And we can't have a life of perfect obedience to him. And that is why justification declares not only that your sins are gone and forgiven, but it also is declaring you receive Jesus's righteousness because we need both. We are actually made righteous by God because Isaiah 61.10 says, He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. I like that, to feel like I am covered. The clothes I'm putting on are God's righteousness. God sees me as righteous. So how can God truthfully declare that we have no penalty to pay for sin and that we have the merits of perfect righteousness if in fact we are guilty sinners. How can he do that? It doesn't seem to make sense. God declares us to be justified because, here's another big Christian word, he imputes Christ's righteousness on us. When we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, or it regards itself as belonging to us. Romans 4, 3 says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him or imputed to him as righteousness. So in this way, Christ's righteousness becomes ours. Paul says that we are those who receive the free gift of righteousness. I think we often think of grace as a free gift, but to think of Jesus's righteousness is also a free gift that we receive. And that should give us a lot of freedom. And it should remind us that we're not condemned and we're always forgiven, even though we live still in broken bodies in a broken world. So what is the idea of imputing something? Where? Where is it imputing something mentioned in the Bible? There's three times this idea of imputing is in the Bible when we study scripture. So first, when Adam sinned, his guilt was imputed to us. God the Father viewed it as belonging to us, and therefore it did. And we've studied that, that sin was cast down to every single person. We are born with sin because God imputed Adam's sin to us. So we have sin because of that. Second, when Christ suffered and died for our sins, our sin was then imputed to Christ. So Adam's sin was imputed to us, and then our sin was imputed to Christ, and God thought of our sin as belonging to Jesus, and so Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Now, the doctrine of justification, we see imputation a third time. Christ's righteousness is now imputed to us, and therefore God thinks of it as belonging to us. It's not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that's freely given. For those of you who like the charts, right, it's the cycle. Adam imputes sin, 
we impute the sin on Christ, and then because Christ paid for it, he imputes his righteousness back on us. You see, it's kind of a cycle. And therefore, we're not identified by our sin any longer. So how are we justified? Well, you might have heard it in some of the verses we were reading, especially from Romans. We are justified by faith alone. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. First of all, justification comes as a result of God's grace, which we don't deserve, right? He didn't have to decide to forgive us of our sins. He didn't have to decide to give us Jesus's righteousness. So justification is a gift of God's grace. Just because God responds to our faith, though, it's not our faith that earns favor with God. Otherwise, that would be an act. Justification is solely based on the merits of Christ's work. Because of Christ's work, we are justified. So let's talk about what's the difference with Catholics versus Protestants in this idea of justification. Catholics misinterpret what justification is. This misinterpretation is what started the Reformation by Martin Luther in 1517. He insisted that justification was by faith alone. That is what Martin Luther is known for. Justification is by faith alone. While the Roman Catholics thought justification was by faith plus the use of, as they termed it, the means of grace. Well, what are these means of grace? The means of grace were found in the sacraments of the Catholic Church, such as you needed to be baptized, you needed confirmation, you needed to be engaging in the Lord's Supper, or as they call the Eucharist, and you needed to have penance when you sin. So they believe we are not fully justified until our lives are completely free of sin, like literally have no sin in our lives, which will not be until after we die and have been purified in what they believe is purgatory. We do not believe in purgatory. We don't see that as biblical. They believe that justification changes us internally and makes us more holy within, whereas we believe justification is a position and does not change us. In the catechism of the Catholic Church, for any of you that have been in catechism, they say this, this is quote, justification includes the remission of sins, it includes sanctification, and the renewal of the inner man. So they're mixing justification and sanctification, okay? Going on to the quote, it says, it is granted to us through baptism. So they believe you are justified once you get baptized. In order for justification to begin, one must first be baptized and then, as an adult, continue to have faith. So if they stop having faith, even if they are baptized, they might not have that justification. You can lose your justification. So they think the point of justification is baptism, but in order to keep your justification, you need to continue in the faith as an adult. The Roman Catholic view may be said to understand justification as based not on imputed, given to you, righteousness, but on it's what's called infused righteousness. And what that means is righteousness that God actually puts into us that changes us internally and in terms of our actual moral character. 
And then God gives us varying measures of justification according to them. So you might get more justification than the other person according to the righteousness that's been infused or placed on you. So saying that again, we don't all get the same amount of justification in the Catholic view, and we don't all get the same amount of righteousness in the Catholic view. So what does this create? Anxiety, confusion, uncertainty, guilt, right, fear. It creates a lot of problems with this view of justification. So the result of the Roman Catholic view of justification is that people cannot be sure if they're in a state of grace where they will experience God's complete acceptance and favor. You don't know if you're favored by God. You don't know if you're fully forgiven by God. They declared at the Council of Trent that nobody, quote, nobody knows with certainty of faith that he has achieved the grace of God. That is sad. Nobody knows with certainty of faith that they have achieved the grace of God. Do you see a problem with that? I mean, that is so disheartening. We don't achieve the grace of God, right? But here, they literally said that he has achieved the grace of God. That is wrong. God's grace literally means unmerited favor. I'm giving you favor you don't deserve. I'm giving it to you because I love you, not because you did something to deserve that grace. We are completely unable to earn favor with God, and the only way we could be declared righteous is if God freely provides salvation for us by grace, totally apart from our work. The Roman Catholics say this, for the justified person, eternal life is both a gift of grace promised by God and a reward for his own good works. Heaven is a reward for your own good works. But what does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? Write this one down. If you have a Catholic friend, this is the first to take them to. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Look, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. No. And so you take that verse. That is the only verse. If someone says they're a Catholic, I say, can I just show you one verse in dialogue with you about it? And I take them to this and I say, how are we saved according to this verse? And how are we not saved according to this verse? And what have you been trying to do? What has your belief been on what you think saves you? And it connects. And then you say, would you like to be saved by faith today? You just help them ask them three questions with this verse. And maybe they were trying to be saved by their works, not by God's grace. Justification comes to us entirely by God's grace, not on account of any merit in ourselves. Another verse, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is another verse you can show. God justifies us through our faith in Christ. Galatians 2.16 says we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Show them that verse. There's three verses right there. But the entire chapter of Romans 4 is a defense of the fact that we are justified by faith and not works, just as Abraham and David were. 
Scripture says we are justified by means of faith. And understanding this, this I put as key to this whole message. Faith is to be the instrument through which justification is given to us, not an activity that earns us merit or favor with God. Our faith does not earn us favor with God, but it gives us justification. So why did God choose faith as a means by which we receive justification? Why is it faith and not works? It is apparently because faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. And don't we all want to depend on ourselves and have our own solution and say it was up to us? And so faith is the attitude opposite of depending on yourself. When we come to Christ in faith, this is what we are saying. I give up. I will not depend on myself or my own good works any longer. I know that I can never make myself right before God. Therefore, Jesus, I trust you and depend on you completely to give me a right standing before God. In this way, faith is the exact opposite of trusting in ourselves. So what is the importance of good works? We're still called to do them, even if they're not related to receiving justification or our salvation. So what's the importance of them? Good works gives evidence of our justification, but they are not the basis of justification. Good works is a pattern of obeying God's commands. 1 John 2, 4 through 5 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So good works can never earn our justification, but they do give evidence that we have been justified. So now I want to switch to this new perspective on Paul, this view of justification that has come up relatively recently. This is a different understanding. It was taught by N.T. Wright, and he wrote two books on it. The first book is What St. Paul Really Said, and then the second book is just titled Justification. For people that adhere to this new perspective, Wright actually has the largest influence in the evangelical world. So he is an evangelical pastor and writer and theologian. And so what we need to see is some of these ideas are creeping into the evangelical world. And so we need to listen for them in people we follow online or people we listen to or books that we read. N.T. Wright argues that justification does not mean that God declares us legally or morally righteous. This is what he says. Instead, it means that God declares us to be members of his covenant community. So he's changing the whole meaning. Justification means we're in a covenant community with God, and that has nothing to do with our legal standing before God. He's changing the whole definition of justification. He says there will be future justification on the last day, and that that verdict on the last day will truly reflect, listen to this, what people have actually done. <gasps> I mean, that's almost worse than Catholics who muddle it, you know? So he says this, he goes, this future justification will be based on the basis of one's entire life. This is not the Bema or the Bema seat of Christ where you will be before Jesus one day and all of your sins will be just kind of gone. He won't even see them. And he's just going to look at how you lived your life for Christ and how you use your talents and, and treasures and time for him. What he is saying is, oh no, your whole life's going to go before your eyes and you're going to be judged on everything. 
So N.T. Wright denies that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So let me ask you, what do you see as wrong with this view in light of what we've just learned about justification? So clearly, N.T. Wright has an incorrect definition of justification. Wright says that justification refers to God's declaration that we are part of his people, which kind of fits more under adoption, which we're going to get to, right? Not justification. However, in the New Testament, there's a Greek verb, diaku, D-I-K-A-I-O-O, diaku. And diaku means to justify. And it does not take the meaning to declare someone a part of a community. So the problem is, is he's making up his own definition for this Greek verb. And nowhere is that in this definition. In the Greek English lexicon, if you were to study this word, there are four meanings to diaku. Number one, listen to how these fit our understanding of justification. Number one, to take up legal cause, show justice, and do justice. Number two, to render a favorable verdict, to be acquitted, be pronounced, and treated as righteous. Number three, to cause someone to be released from personal or institutional claims that are no longer to be considered pertinent or valid to make free or pure. And four, to demonstrate to be morally right, proven to be right. Those are all the Greek definitions of this Greek word that means justify. Nothing said anything about being in God's community. That's just not part of that word. But yet that's what he focuses on. And so we have to be careful that he's choosing to make up his own meaning. Also, the New Testament never speaks of our good works as the basis for justification. The Apostle Paul did not depend on how he lived his life to make him right before God, but said his life was actually worthless in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Paul said that in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that it is through being in Christ that we become the righteousness of God. So if our future justification is based on the record of how we have lived our earthly lives, then our ultimate salvation would be based on works, right? Pure and simple. That's what he's communicating. Wright misinterprets Romans 2, verses 6 through 7. Here's how he interprets Romans 2. He says this, quote, He will render to each one according to his works, to those whom by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. But here's what Paul says in rebuttal to that in Romans 9, 30 through 32. He says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So what he's saying is the Gentiles received righteousness and the Jewish people did not because they were trying to do it on their own good works. Paul's literally demolishing this argument. So the reality is, if our future justification was based on God's evaluation of our 
whole life lived, as N.T. Wright says, then no one could be justified, right? Because we know Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way to do it. Wright denies that God imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to us because in Wright's view, our future justification is to be on basis of how we have lived. And then what is needed for justification? Not Christ, but our good works. So God, think of this way, God would be untruthful if he declared us to be righteous when in fact we were not righteous in ourselves and we did not have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But we're saying, no, God is righteous, and he did choose to impute Jesus's righteousness to us. Sadly, this is another big problem with N.T. Wright. He never mentions we need to repent and turn to Christ in faith to have a personal relationship with him. There's no call to repentance, which we talked about last week is pretty important. He even goes far to say this, quote, faith is never and in no way a qualification provided from the human side, either for getting into God's family or for staying there once in. He's saying faith has nothing to do with if you're part of God's community. This is completely contrary to the gospel message that it is by faith that we are saved. Okay, so you want to watch out for that because he is a well-known author and pastor and he's in evangelical realms and he could be influencing young people today well let's talk about adoption let's move on from justification what is adoption it is god's act of making those who trust in christ members of his family so this is how we become members of god's family i have said this in probably every class i've taught some of you have been in all of my classes and even my daughter, sweet daughter, last night, she was, she was drawing while we were having our time together before bed. She drew this heart with God in it. And, and she wrote, friends, parents, everyone. And then she wrote, children of God. And I said, that's not true. Not everyone is a child of God, Briella. And she goes, what? I go, no, if we don't accept Jesus, we're called children of wrath, that we will receive God's wrath. Why would you put wrath on your child? We discipline our children in our family, but we should not have wrath toward our children. And so one thing we want to always remember in this discussion is every person is made in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God, and that's why every person, believer or not, is valuable, but we are not all children of God. You can't look at every child and say, but you're a child of God, or look at every person dying and saying, but you're a child of God. If they have not put their faith, they are not in the family. Because if you're a child of God, you're in his family. You have to be adopted somehow, okay? Not every person is a child of God unless you have been adopted into his family. And that's why this theology of adoption is important. So adoption focuses on the personal relationships that salvation gives us with God and his people. When you are adopted, you are personally in that family and you have personal relationships. And that's what we then have with God. So John 1.12 says this, All who receive Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.14 and 17 says that for all those who are led by the Spirit of God, which means you have to have the Spirit in you, are sons of God. You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
So the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, these two verses are showing clearly a child of God is an heir of all that Jesus has promised. And not every person receives Jesus's promises, right? Unless they come to him and cry, Abba, Father. Since we are adopted into God's family, we are family members also with one another in one family. Galatians 4.28 says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And Paul explains that the status of adoption as God's children was not fully realized in the Old Covenant. They didn't really get it in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. He says that before faith came, we were held captive under the law. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or daughters of God through faith. So again, you are not a child of God, a son or daughter of God, unless you have faith in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3, 23 through 26. So even though there was a consciousness of God as father to the people of Israel, the full benefits and privileges of membership in God's family did not come until Christ came and the spirit was poured into our hearts, bearing witness with our spirit that we're God's children. They didn't always know. They didn't know if they were going to receive the wrath of God or not as God's chosen people. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we can have peace of knowing. There is evidence that you are a child of God because of how the Holy Spirit talks to you. That's why it says that it's the Holy Spirit that fellowships with us. Of the three in the Trinity, he is the one that has been put into our life. He is literally in our, in our beings. He is the one that dwells inside of us, and he is the one that we have fellowship with. And that is what gives us confidence. We are adopted. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2 through 3, that those who don't believe in Christ are sons of disobedience, and our children of wrath. That's Ephesians 2. That's where you get that there are children of wrath. They are not part of God's family. Because believers, though, are God's children, there are many benefits. And the greatest is that we have an intimate relationship with the Father. We can be in his presence and engage with him. So what other evidence do we see in our lives that we are God's children? How do we know we're God's children? Well, the first one is we know that God loves us. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 talks about this. And although the New Testament says that we are now God's children, we should note that there is another sense in which our adoption is actually still in the future because we will not receive the full benefits and the full privileges of adoption until Christ returns and we actually have new resurrected bodies. Part of adoption is we will get that new resurrected body, which we're going to talk about in a few more weeks. Romans 8, 23 says, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul sees that the receiving of new resurrection bodies is part of our fulfillment and a privilege of being adopted. Not everyone is going to get that new body, right? Just those that have been adopted into, the, into his family. The Holy Spirit, we already said, gives us assurance of our adoption. That's another benefit. Also, adoption follows conversion and is an outcome of saving faith. 
The New Testament connects adoption with saving faith and says that in response to our trusting in Christ, God has adopted us into his family. Galatians 3.20, Paul says this, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And John 1.12 says, But to those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Oftentimes, if someone comes to Christ, I will read to them that verse, 1 John 12. And the reason I do that is because I want them to understand, like, you are now in the body of Christ, and you can't not be in the body of Christ after this. And these verses also show us that after conversion, we are immediately adopted in the family. It's nothing we do. Another benefit of adoption is we can see how God relates to us. He relates to us as a loving father, not as a slave anymore. There's fellowship. He shows us love, understanding. He takes care of our needs. He gives us good gifts. He gives us the Holy Spirit to be empowered for life and ministry. He gives us an inheritance in heaven that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It says that in 1 Peter 1.4. And we're also led by the Spirit to guide us on decisions, to walk in obedience, to live in His will. It says in Romans 8.14, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you know the Spirit's leading you, if you know the Spirit's guiding you, you know you're a daughter or a son of God because you know his presence is in your life. Now, here's a reality, though. God also disciplines us because we're his children. So there is discipline in the family of God. Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 and verse 10 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Every one of us, it says. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. So he loves us enough to say, I'm gonna guide you and discipline you and correct you and even rebuke you, but never condemn, right? Never his wrath. But his gentle shepherd's heart is going to guide us because he wants us to pursue holiness. Another hard one, you know, besides discipline, is that we actually have the privilege, if I could put it that way, to share in his sufferings for his glory. We will endure suffering in this life so that we might also receive glory in the next. Romans 8, 17 says, If children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified in him. So just the reality, being a follower of Jesus means you're probably going to be persecuted. And if you haven't experienced it yet, I think it's coming. So we need to be ready for that. But yet there's an inheritance waiting for us that we can look forward to. Last few things. Since we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to relate to one another like a large family. And some of you have even said that, that you feel like this is your family. This is your family. And we need that. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. He's given, let us see, we are the body. So adoption is about family relationships with God and with others. And once we're in the family, we're always in the family. We are in the family. And this is supposed to bring us joy and peace in our hearts. And so I love today's lesson because it should give us joy and peace knowing 
It's just as if I've never sinned. It should give us joy and peace knowing Jesus' righteousness has been put onto us, imputed onto us, right? And it should give us peace and joy knowing I've not only been adopted now with evidence the Holy Spirit's in me, but in full adoption, I'm going to receive all these inheritances in heaven, including a new body. And so these are things we can be rejoicing in. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here today. Thank you that we can trust your word in all of these scriptures that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you for how Martin Luther took a risk and how he wanted to help the church that he loved so much try to understand better this view of justification because it transformed his life. And Lord, we pray that as we engage with others that are in different faiths or in different churches, Lord, that we can help them better understand that justification is not by our works, but it is by faith in you. And it is your grace that gives us this justification. Help us to continue to be loving enough to have these conversations with others. In your name we pray. Amen.